Welcome to the next episode of Fun's Tech Talks. Today we will address uh, the basic uh, corporate and tax aspects of setting up uh, a crypto fund. Quite recently, we um, got a lot of questions from clients that are either interested to set up such a fund or to uh, invest uh, in, set, uh, in such a fund. And that's why today we, uh, we thought it would be nice to, uh, to talk about um, the corporate and tax aspects. Um, we have a pretty full uh, house today, all Baker McKenzie uh, people. I would suggest uh, that we go uh, around and uh, introduce ourselves. And I would first like to give the floor to Iris. Iris Barson, can you introduce yourself? Yes, thank you so much. So um, I'm Iris Barson. I'm a counsel at the Parisian office of Baker McKenzie, specialized in banking and financial regulation with a particular focus on blockchain and crypto assets. Well, I'll give the floor to Michael. Thank you, Iris. So Michael Gorelick, a partner with Baker McKenzie in the Toronto office with a fab practice focused on financial regulation and securities law. And I'll hand it over to Usman. Yeah, thanks a lot, Michael. My name is Usman Sheikh. I am a principal in the Toronto office and I head up our blockchain and smart contract group. And I'm based in our transactional group. I'll hand it over to Javier. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Javier, a tax partner at Baker Spain. And uh, I'll be handing it over to my colleague, uh, Roger. Thank you, Xavier. Hi, I'm Roger Vandenberg. Um, I'm a director uh, tax in Amsterdam and specialized in crypto and blockchain. Thank you very much, uh, everybody, for introducing yourself. My name is uh, Hendrik Stipdonk. I'm a counsel in the uh, Amsterdam office and also specialized in, in crypto. Um, I will moderate uh, this session uh, today. Roger, uh, perhaps uh, to start with you, could you uh, give us a little bit uh, of the lay of the land on, on crypto and, and crypto funds? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. So basically, um, crypto funds are hot at this moment in time. Um, we see quite an increase in crypto funds being set up. And what we see is that there are basically three types of funds that are created. Um, well, the, the most straightforward one is, of course, a fund that tracks the performance of a specific blockchain. And so a, a Bitcoin fund or an Ethereum fund. Uh, sometimes it, it tracks uh, futures of a certain blockchain. Uh, for example, you see that with, with, with ETFs in, in the USA. Um, a, a, a second uh, fund that, that we often see um, are crypto-based index funds. So basically, these funds have a basket of cryptocurrencies rather than just one cryptocurrency um, that basically allows investors to gain exposure to a wider range of cryptocurrencies, which can also help to mitigate some of the volatility risks. Um, a third category of funds is also a very interesting one, and that is more a bit well a crypto-based thematic fund. And with that, I mean that uh, those funds invest in companies that are involved in the crypto industry. For example, you can have a basket of shares of cryptocurrency miners, uh, a basket of shares of cryptocurrency exchanges, 
or a mix of that even. And of course, various hybrids between all those different funds are possible. So I think at this moment in time, you see that um, next to that, and that is of course not so much a fund. You also see that investors are seeking um, to directly buy shares, for example, in companies that hold large amounts of holdings in a certain currency, for example, a micro strategy in the US is a company like that. So I think that is a bit the lay of the land of the different funds that you see. They are in various sizes and shapes. Eh? You have them from friends and family funds to massive funds uh, that are changed, uh, that are exchanged on, on the bigger exchanges. Um, so yeah, um, I, I think Henrik, that, that is a bit the lay of the land as we see it at this point in time. Yeah, that, that, that's very uh, interesting, uh, Roger, and, uh, and thank you for sharing this. Um, perhaps good to start um, then a little bit on the corporate uh, uh, aspects of, of funds. And, and Iris, I, I would like you to ask um, what kinds of funds you typically see in, in the market. Yes, uh, thank you so much, Henrik. So more from a regulatory rather than a corporate law, strictly corporate law perspective. Let me perhaps just paint the big picture, at least, of how the legislation plays out in Europe, right? We have, on the one hand, we have crypto assets that as such are not yet regulated in all countries and that can have very various features. Obviously, if the features are very close to securities, then securities law will apply and then obviously uh, if this is the case, funds can invest in these securities. But um, you have this on the one hand that you need to keep in mind. On the other hand, you have the regulation of funds. And here in Europe, at least, we have two um, a big subdivision between usage funds that are accessible to the broader public. And we have alternative investment funds. Uh, that are uh, destined to professionalized and knowledgeable investors, right? And now you have to combine the two. So obviously, uh, we don't really see funds for a broad public because the risk is simply too high and the volatility is, uh, is too important. Especially usage funds are very, very regulated, so they, they don't have a lot of freedom to invest in, in crypto assets. AIF funds are um, have slightly more freedom, but here we also have subcategories of AIF funds. And in certain jurisdictions, um, you can see uh, these type of funds that are, as Roger explained, either exposed to crypto, because very often what we've seen in the beginning is an exposure to crypto. This doesn't mean that they directly invest in crypto, but that they track the performance of crypto through diverse structured products, right? And then you have also, and this is slightly more recent, regulated funds that start to invest in crypto as into crypto assets directly. I put aside the funds that we saw in the beginning that were totally unregulated because crypto assets start to become more and more seized by the law and more and more regulated. So bottom line to conclude, it's rather... AIF funds destined to specialized uh, institutional professional investors. Often it is an exposure to crypto, not a direct investment. 
but we start to have also funds that invest at least part of their assets or more recently, even in France, we've had one, all their assets into crypto assets directly. Okay, <laughs> so that's that's very good, uh, very good to know, and I think that gives a very good overview. Um, Michael, is, is something similar happening in the, in, in the Canadian um, landscape? Yeah, th thank you, Henrik. And so, indeed, uh, in Canada and even the U.S., um, we do uh, have a, a similar landscape, although certain particularities. Uh, Crypto and most crypto assets are viewed as securities with perhaps the exception of Bitcoin. And on the uh, fund side of things, I think the, the greatest influencing regulatory factor on the market for crypto funds in the US and Canada are the rules that require issuers like investment funds to file a prospectus with securities regulators and to get their approval in order to distribute shares of those funds. Uh, alternatively, uh, distribution of funds uh, could rely on a prospectus exemption uh, to make that uh, distribution. In Canada, where we saw the, the first crypto funds targeting uh, accredited investors in the exempt market, uh, were offered by registered portfolio managers uh, late 2017. Um, when we look to uh, the retail side and what we refer to in, in Canada and the U.S. as mutual funds, um, despite some early challenges, uh, regulators in Canada uh, first approved um, a Bitcoin ETFs in February 2021 in the category of what we refer to as alternative mutual funds. And this is after having worked through uh, challenges that were posed by requirements relating to custody and also certain restrictions on commencement of activities of the fund. Um, today in Canada, there are over a dozen pure play crypto ETFs uh, that are traded uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange. These funds are essentially invested entirely either in Bitcoin or Ether or a mix of the two. Um, in the US, there are uh, a good number of private crypto funds um, that are common. Um, however, there have been at least 12 crypto asset ETFs that are still awaiting approval by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And currently, given the climate in the US, signs for when these approvals might uh, arrive are murky at best. So that, that really gives the lay of the land from a, a regulatory perspective um, in Canada and the US. Thank you. Thank you. So there is a, a, a lot to come there, a lot of developments to expect. Uh, Esmond, do you have anything to add uh, to that from a U.S. perspective, or, or shall we move on to the major uh, regulatory trends that, that you see in the market? Yeah, let me sort of in one breath uh, speak to the regulatory trends and some of the litigation matters that really supplement what Michael was saying. In North America, there have been quite a few noteworthy cases, including enforcement actions by the SEC 
against unregistered crypto investment funds. But what I wanted to just highlight are two high-profile litigation matters, one in Canada that has concluded and one in the U.S., which is ongoing, that involve the approval of crypto ETFs and funds. And what they really show is the divergent positions in Canada, the United States in this, in this space. So in Canada, we had a very high profile case called 3IQ. And in that matter, a company called 3IQ wanted to create a non-redeemable investment fund that would invest in Bitcoin and be available to all retail investors. Uh, but in 2019, the director of the Ontario Securities Commission's investment fund branch decided to refuse the receipt for the prospectus. So as Michael was just saying, you need a prospectus to move forward with these things. He refused on the basis of a f uh, on a few grounds. One was that uh, such funds should not be holding illiquid assets. And his position was that Bitcoin wasn't an, Ill an, Ill an illiquid asset. And then secondly, he cited a various uh, number of operational risks, including that there was an inability to accurately value Bitcoin due to the fragmented and unregulated environment, that there were novel risks relating to the safeguarding of Bitcoin because of the lack of SOC assurance reports and insurance, and that there's a material risk that these funds would not be able to file audited financials due to the lack of SOC assurance. So. This was ultimately challenged. That decision was challenged by 3IQ to the commission. And in 2019, the commission ruled and disagreed with the director. They said, while the director's concerns are valid or warranted and should be taken seriously, they do not uh, warrant denying a receipt. And so the commissioner in that case said, look, I do not agree that Bitcoin is not an illiquid asset. There is substantial daily trading volume. Uh, while there's evidence of market manipulation, one can still achieve price discovery and really went through a number of the reasons that the director had put forward and ultimately said this is not a ground to deny a receipt. And so as Michael was just describing, since that decision, a number of publicly traded funds, including several ETFs, are now actively trading in Canada. In the U.S., we have quite a bit of a different story. In the United States, while there have been various Bitcoin futures ETFs that are available to the public, to date, the SEC has rejected all spot Bitcoin ETFs, that is, all ETFs where the ETF itself would hold the Bitcoin directly. And the verbiage in these decisions is largely the same. The SEC has stated that the given ETF did not meet sufficient criteria and it raises investor protection concerns because of the potential for fraud, concerns regarding valuation methodology and market manipulation, including that there was a lack of a surveillance um, sharing agreement between a regulated market in this space and a regulated exchange in this space, which leaves investors vulnerable to um, potential wash trading, price manipulation by whales, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting in this matter is, is that in June of 2022, Grayscale, which had put forward an application for a spot ETF um, involving Bitcoin, uh, challenged the SEC's position when its application was rejected. So right in the same month, they commenced an application to challenge the rejection of their application by the SEC, which was issued in uh, the decision to deny them was in June of 2022. And in their lawsuit, among other things, they note the SEC's position, which appears to be divergent, that they've approved several Bitcoin future ETFs, and they are greenlighting that product while rejecting the other 
involving spot or Bitcoin holding ETFs, which appeared arbitrary and, and in their view was a violation of various administrative legislation. So the argument in that case just occurred in March, just a few months ago, with a decision to be rendered shortly. The case is expected to have a very significant impact on the industry, including in North America, but around the world, and we're watching it quite closely. Thank you, Eswan. That's, that's very interesting. Uh, Iris, are, are there similar trends uh, that you observe in, uh, in Europe? Well, yes and no. I find it quite interesting what uh, Usman just exposed and uh, also what Michael explained. I see a certain number of common points and of differences. The major difference between Europe and the US is the fact that the US uh, and Canada, by the way, apply a more comprehensive notion of what a security is, right? Through the Howey test, you can actually subsume a lot of um, a lot of um, well assets under the securities uh, definition. And being classified as a security gives you obviously the, the opportunity and the possibility to invest into it also under, under, uh, uh, under other regimes like a fund regime. In Europe, we don't have that because basically in Europe, we have MIFID that lists a number of securities or derivatives. And uh, obviously, crypto assets are not part of, 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 of this list. And so it's, it was more complicated for us to uh, seize them by the law. But not being seized by the law also is a question of legal uncertainty. So investing into crypto assets is actually a tricky question because you don't know how to safe keep them. You don't know how to value, the, how, to, how to do the valuation and so on and so forth. So what, what I'm hearing here from what Usman says is that in the US, you obviously have a, a more important crypto fund activity and therefore you also have more enforcement actions. Whereas in Europe, until now, we don't have that yet because we don't, have yet an applicable comprehensive legislation that deals with crypto. We have the Mika regulation that is, uh, well, it's just a question of a couple of weeks or months before it's really totally enacted. And so within one or two years, it might be slightly different, even though Mika itself does not deal with crypto funds as such, but it deals with crypto assets. And so it might make it more mainstream and easier to invest into them. And so right now, the enforcement action is not the question. It's rather a local initiatives of legislators that make it more or less easy or provide some kind of legal certainty in order for uh, fund managers uh, to create funds that are exposed or directly invest into, uh, into crypto. And so France is an interesting example. Why? Because France was one of the first European countries trying to regulate crypto in uh, 2019 and one of the provisions of this PAP law was to enable certain professional uh, funds uh, or capital investment funds to expose either up to 20 or to invest either up to 20% of their assets into crypto. So this gives a, a little legal certainty or even all their assets into crypto. And we do have, but it's quite recent, a fund that obtained a license from the AMF that is totally invested into crypto. So I think this explains a little bit the differences between North America and, and Europe in general. 
Yes, thank you, Iris. That, that, that gives indeed a great overview. Thank you all for the uh, regulatory overview um, uh, and uh, perspectives in both uh, uh, the US and Canada and, and the EU. Um, Javier, can, can we go perhaps to the tax uh, side now? And can you share with us um, well some pitfalls or, or things the investors should be aware of when they invest in, in these kinds of crypto funds? Uh, sure. Thank you, Henrik. Uh, yeah, on top of the regulatory framework, um, it is great to combine it with taxation, most importantly with the taxation of the, of the investors. Uh, although it is pretty complex to offer kind of general blueprint on tax consequences, from my perspective, investors um, in crypto funds should take into account uh, different factors. Um, First of all, it is important to understand the direct impact um, the taxation may have on the investment profitability. Uh, first of all, the investor will be li very likely facing uh, cross-border scenarios being relevant on the one hand, where the country of residence of the investor is, and on the other hand, where is the fund located. Uh, both locations matter as long as any income obtained by the investor, dividend interest or potential capital gains could or could not be taxable in the ta in the country of residence of the, of the fund. And uh, lately could be taxed again in the country of residence of the investors. Um, as mentioned, taxation could impact the profitability. What basically happens in those um, cross-border situations is that the country of residence of the investor generally provides foreign tax credits, meaning you are basic, basically get to deduct from the tax you've paid locally and the tax you've paid abroad. But if the tax paid abroad cannot be fully deducted, that means, for example, let's say you paid abroad 25%, and the investor can only get a deduction of 20%. Hence, um, well, there is a final cost for the investor of five by reducing uh, the investment profitability. And there is this needed interaction between both countries. Um, a key element also is whether there is a tax treaty to force. Because what is the deal with tax treaties? Tax treaties generally state lower tax rates agreed between the countries or uh, even exceptions. So under tax treaty scenarios, the investor may generally skip from those over uh, taxation scenarios. Um, on top of this, um, to qualify um, under the reduced tax rates or slash exemptions, um, the investor also should double check that the legal nature of the fund is covered by the treaty because otherwise uh, those tax rates slash exemptions will not be applicable. And uh, well, what about if there is no tax treaty? Uh, I think there could be like two scenarios. The one already is playing with, you know, greater tax rates and the one uh, preliminary is playing where the investor could think that it is not that bad having a tax treaty because you know the country or where the fund is located is not taxing revenues but under this scenario it should be also considered whether 
um, the jurisdiction where, where the fund is located could be considered as a low tax jurisdiction by the country of residence of the investor and whether there is any anti-abuse provision that could potentially uh, apply. And uh, I give you um, a couple of, uh, of examples. Um, some countries impose yearly uh, taxation on unrealized capital gains. What does uh, this mean? Well, generally, if we were asked, will I pay taxes on my investment if I don't sell it? The general answer is no. But if uh, you are investing in a product or in a fund that is uh, tax resident in one of those countries, one of those anti-abuse provisions could apply. For instance, funds located in low-tax jurisdiction, uh, even if you did not sell your stake, and realized capital gains could turn into realized gains being therefore taxable when the year ends. So this is a good point to keep on top of the investors in mind. Um, what else? Uh, other example could be for um, um, regulatory colleagues who are mentioning regulated funds. If uh, the investor can leverage uh, any tax advantage uh, provided by uh, local personal tax provisions, such as uh, special tax deferral regimes for transfer of units of shares of the specific uh, funds, um, meeting some requirements. That is generally a benefit that is not uh, granted to direct investment in securities. And um, the last uh, but not least, uh, the investor should also be aware of, of any potential different tax rates in the country of residence between short and long term uh, capital gains based on for how long you hold the, the, the investment. Um, so, Henry, as you can see, a good bunch of factors should be regarded by investors to be fully aware of the impact taxation may have on their. Uh, investment in, in crypto funds. Thank you, uh, Javier. It, it sounds indeed uh, pretty complex and it looks like every investor should uh, really seek uh, advice prior to the, their investments. Roger, uh, perhaps the last questions uh, to, to finalize. Um, recently, the EU announced a proposal for tax transparency rules related to crypto assets. Can these uh, rules also apply to uh, to investment funds, and and what would be the uh, effect of that? Thank you so much for this question. Um, indeed, I think that you are referring to to DAC eight. Uh, DAC eight is a new tax regulation framework. It's a directive, actually, that will require uh, financial some financial institutions to report information about crypto assets transactions and more specifically uh, the, the exchange of, of crypto assets to fiat or crypto to crypto and basically these rules are aimed at cryptocurrency uh, exchanges and other providers that exchange these cryptocurrencies and these rules are uh, being made so that uh, information is shared throughout various taxing authorities in the EU um, in order to create more transparency on what is happening. The question is here indeed, what is then the impact on funds? 
And I think on most funds, especially funds eh, like we said before that are indirectly investing in the industry, um, Duck 8 will probably not have any impact. The question here is what about funds that directly hold cryptocurrencies and where you um, can get out of these cryptocurrencies with fiat money? I think there perhaps is is a way to say that those uh, those funds might be subject to duck eight, although that is not clear yet. Also, not if if we take a look at the explanations that has been given until now. Um, I think there will be more clarity on that in the future or the near future. Uh, but until that time, it is indeed still the question whether those funds will fall under duck eight. Well, that makes a lot of sense, uh, Roger. Thank you for uh, for for sharing that. Um, I, I think in summary, uh, I've heard that there are many uh, differences and and still a, a lot of things happening uh, with respect to uh, to crypto funds. So a lot of differences between the U.S., Canada, and and the EU, uh, and also a lot of uh, different tax consequences for each uh, individual uh, in, investor. Thank you all for, for sharing that. We hope to hear all of you uh, on one of our next FinTech podcasts. Thank you very much. <laughs>